It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got lots to talk about, including the return of Security Essentials to Windows 7, plus eh, two new bugs. Hey, no big deal. We'll also uh, talk about the surprising revelation that the CIA has been spying on everybody, uh, every customer of Crypto AG for 40, 50 years. That and we'll talk a lot about Google's plan to eliminate third-party cookies. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Security Now comes to you from the LastPass Studios. Securing every access point in your company doesn't have to be a challenge. LastPass unifies access and authentication to make securing your employees simple and secure. Check out LastPass.com slash twit to learn more. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 753, recorded Tuesday, February 11th, 2020. Promiscuous Cookies. Security Now is brought to you by PlexTrack. PlexTrack has finally solved the pain of security assessment reporting. Try PlexTrack free for one month, on-premises or in the cloud, with no contracts or risks. Go to PlexTrack.com twit to claim your free month today. And by IT Pro TV. Get the most up-to-date IT training with IT Pro TV. Their video courses, virtual labs, and practice tests will give you everything you need to become a successful IT professional. Visit itpro.tv slash security now for an additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. Use the code SN30 at checkout. And by Melissa. Bad data happens to good companies. That's why 10,000 businesses count on Melissa for clean, reliable address data. Get started today with 25,000 records cleaned for free, a $75 value at melissa.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show where you cover the latest in security news. Cover your privacy, cover your privates, and we give you all the information you need <laughs> To protect yourself with this guy right here doing the Vulcan salute, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. You got to watch your privates this episode, Leo, because we're going to be talking about promiscuous cookies. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so you want to make sure you don't yes. get cookie crumbs. Well, cookie it is a privacy issue, isn't it? Yeah. 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 All right. Um, so uh, we're going to start the week with some welcome news and... An apology that I have to give to my Twitter followers since they must have been tweeting at me about this. But I, I, I've been so busy and focused on other things that I've fallen behind in, in keeping up with Twitter because it was Elaine who first provided some good news, which we will discuss, that I'm sure other people were trying to tell me about. Uh, and I'll hold us in suspense for a moment about that. Then we're going to follow even more blow-by-blow blow consequences of January's final updates to Windows 7. They've uh, <laughs> it's just really having a problem with this last one. Uh, we look at a worrisome exploitable Bluetooth bug Google just fixed in Android. But unfortunately, it's potentially bad. And we know that a lot of older Android smartphones aren't going to get fixed. So we're going to take a look at that. Well, we're also going to update on a, on a, a subject from last week, this Clearview AI company 
and the ongoing saga with them as more major companies have awoken to the fact that they've had their sites scraped and have not taken it uh, well. Uh, we're going to take a peek into data recovery from physically destroyed phones. Our NIST uh, revealed some interesting work on the problem of getting data off of phones which bad guys have attempted to physically destroy in order to prevent that recovery. Uh, we look at yet another wacky data exfiltration channel, uh, and then we're going to conclude, as I mentioned, by looking at the consequences of the recent changes to make cookies less promiscuous for this episode 753 for February 11th. So... I think another great podcast for our nice. listeners and, and a very techie, geeky picture of the week, but uh, uh, something that I've had in my pile waiting to share that will be fun. So, yeah, I have a video of the week to share from you for you. OK, so when you do the picture, I'll do the video. How about that? It's a little surprise for you, Steve. But first, <laughs> oh well, no, you're, it's a pleasant surprise. You'll, uh, you'll yeah, like I it. knew yeah. you weren't gonna. No, do, I wouldn't. Yeah. No one do anything mean. <laughs> Uh, first, a word from uh, a new sponsor. We're welcoming a brand new sponsor, but something I think a lot of you'll be very interested in. It is a purple teaming platform, and I had to say, now, like a purple people eater? No, no, not at all. It's Plex Track, and. This is for companies who have red teams who are out there looking for vulnerabilities. And I hope you do. If you're a big company, you don't have a red team. You need one. Pen testing, checking the network, looking for advanced persistent threats, that kind of thing. And if you've got a red team, well, you got to have somebody who fixes it, right? That's the blue team. But the communication between the red and the blue team is often problematic. You know, you... What is a red team write up a Microsoft Word document or a PDF or you you put it in somewhere and, and then the blue team has to look at it. And it's not easy. This is a great solution. The guy who created I talked to him, Dan DeClos, has been in cybersecurity for years. And he understood that there really was a problem with reporting when it comes to getting the information discovered by the red team to the blue team. So he founded PlexTrack, a venture-backed company. A dozen people work there. That's They've got Fortune 500 companies as clients. So it's a small company, but it's doing a very, I think, vital thing. And the people who use it are thrilled with it. It gives you everything you need for a purple <laughs> a purple platform, purple teaming platform. Uh, you get fast reporting. You get centralized data. You get streamlined management. It's all in one platform. And I, I, the reason you need this is because the red team needs to report quickly, but the blue team needs to track those reports, those bug reports, the issues, and attest. You need attestation to say, we've done it. It's done. It's fixed. The one thing you don't want is a big, long 500-page report with a 1,000 recommendations. PlexTrack solves that. Sifts it all together, creates something actionable, trackable, that both sides can use conveniently. It shifts the paradigm from document-based reporting to web-based reporting. It's purple teaming. They have custom templating and write-ups, and, and, and their repository means you can set that all up ahead of time, and then you'll have the consistency of knowing this is what the report looks like, this is what we need you to do. 
It generates reports creating collaborations between red and blue teams through a centralized interface. Red teams report the issues. Blue teams remediate them. And you can, of course, use the browser. In fact, that's probably the recommended way because you have a single source of truth there and and you know what's going on. But yes, you can put it in Word and PDFs if you really want to. You always have that option. It streamlines the process of identifying, tracking, and resolving findings for blue teams. Multiple security issues takes them, puts them into a cohesive, dynamic, live report that enables ease of remediation. Analytics tell the story to the C-suite. And, of course, that's part of the reporting job, right? It's not just red talking to blue. you got to tell the people upstairs that we've done it. This is what was wrong. This is what we fixed. And the analytics are in there for that, too. You can deploy PlexTrack in minutes. It's easy to install, easy to set up, and you're going to really like it. I don't know how to convince you to give this a try, except maybe maybe if we gave you a free one-month on-prem try, you'd like it. By the way, you don't have to run it in the cloud. I said it's web-based, but you can run it on-prem. And I know in a lot of situations, security, that's the kind of thing you don't want to put in the cloud. That's fine. There's an on-prem solution as well that gives you the same kind of intranet cloud tracking and all of that stuff. Because you're listening to this show, one month on-prem or in the cloud, your choice. There's no contract. There's no risk. There's no cost to you. Just go to PlexTrack, P-L-E-X-T-R-A-C, PlexTrack.com slash twit. Claim that free month. I'm telling you, this is a solution you're going to want, you're going to use. And once you start using it like so many Fortune 500 companies already, you're going to say, I don't know how we lived without it. You need it. PlexTrack.com slash twit. They wanted to go to the this, the red team and the the show the one show both the red and the blue team listened to, and they found the right show security now plextrack.com slash twit. Thank you plextrack for supporting security now. Thank you security now listener for using that URL. Give them a try. What have you got to lose? Plextrack.com slash twit. All right, Steve. Who first? You want you me first or you first? You want the picture yeah, or the video? Let's see the video. What do you so, got for us? Uh, we had our engineering dinner last night. And Patrick Delahanty, I don't know if you know, he's uh, he's our guy. He does all our programming. He does the manages the API. He's really our coder, our security guy. He moved back east with his wife Svet, who is a children's author, very successful, and they have a, a beautiful boy, Caden, who is how old's Caden now? Maybe a year and a half, maybe just a year. He sent us this video of Caden. Apparently, Caden has excellent. Uh, taste in podcasts. Are you watching Steve Gibson? Steve Gibson. Steve Gibson. Steve Gibson. Yeah. He loves Steve Gibson. He asks for Steve Gibson. This oh. this guy's going far. I think he's a red teamer. I think. I don't know. I may be wrong, but this guy, this kid Caden is adorable. And uh, yeah, he loves for some reason. Yes, the Mister Rogers of security. Even, even children love Steve Gibson. <laughs> Not awesome. All right, okay. now your picture. Now your turn. Well, so all of us, I'm sure you and I have discussed this particular. Oh, I hate captures. Yes, this particular breed Ugh. of captcha is so annoying. They take a a, a photo and then chop it up into a grid. And, you know, typically it'll be like an intersection with, you know, various things going on. And your job as the human is to select all the squares of the grid that have an auto 
or that have a crosswalk or that have a crossing sign or something. I hate helping Google's self-driving cars because that's (laughs) what we're doing. You know that. For free, we're giving them free human input. Funny you should say that because we may be helping Google with their code, in this case, uh, debug their code. This CAPTCHA says, select all squares with bugs. If there are none, click skip. This is skip. a joke now. Come on. And, <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't know, Leo. That second one, uh, that second line down, third over. There's a lot of hex encoding here. Got, we've, got, we've got an unbalanced parentheses, I think, uh, <laughs> oh in, in that if clause. So, yeah, anyway, I thought someone sent me this, and that's I thought, oh, that's, kind of, that, that's fun. That's definitely way out there in upper geek land yeah. is, uh, yeah. uh, gets, gets the humor of that. Um Okay, so this came from Elaine yesterday when she when she sent back the transcript. Hi, Steve. I've been using MS Security Essentials since it came out through XP and 7. Wikipedia says, quote, Although support for Windows 7 ended on January 4th, 2020, and MSE is no longer available to download, Microsoft will continue to update virus definitions for existing users until 2023. And so then she said, guess I'm good for a while. I still get new definitions every night. And I can confirm that I too am still getting nightly updates on my Windows 7 machine. And my my MSE is continuing to scan and protect my Win 7 machine. So all of that that we've been saying and grumbling about the last few weeks about, oh, the end of AV and what are we need going to switch to and should we just go with nothing, just go commando? Uh, turns out, no. Yes, our Windows 7 machines no longer get patches, but their Microsoft is going to continue with keeping the virus scanner, a Windows Security Essentials or presumably Defender, depending on uh, what you have in your Win 7, uh, current. So yay for that. I just wanted to correct the record that this is not going to be a problem. We all get to keep our virus things updated. And frankly, that's that's the biggest issue as, you know, most of us are using non-Microsoft browsers so Microsoft may choose not to update their browser. That's fine. Google's going to keep Chrome updated. They've said I, I, uh, Firefox, uh, Mozilla will be keeping Firefox updated. We, we have the commitment from them for that. And if we also have our, our inbuilt native AV still getting definitions for another three years, we're good. I mean, yes, if there's some horrible problem with internet connectivity, some, I mean, you know, who knows what. Of course, we'll be keeping an, our eye on that um, and see whether anything that happens in Windows 7 could affect, I mean, in Windows 10 could affect 7. But for what it's worth, uh, we don't need to go searching for some other uh, AV tool. So uh, thank you, Elaine, for the news. Um, uh, we did get a fix from Microsoft for the problem we discussed last week on Friday, uh, that was the the 7th of February, they dropped an out-of-cycle update to fix the desktop wallpaper stretch black screen of death problem, which got introduced in the January Patch Tuesday. Um, 
it does, there, there's really nothing to their update. Uh, what's interesting is I was curious to know whether they were going to fix – whether they were going to drop a, um, a formal like Patch Tuesday on Windows 7 customers. But so far, I, I checked this morning and there were no updates from my Windows 7 machine. I meant to check again uh, just before the podcast. Have but you I had got, the uh, problem that other people are reporting now where you can't shut it down? <laughs> That's what we're coming to. Okay. We're going to get to that in a second. Okay, yes. Yeah. yes. They've got more to said, fix. They, we, they sure do. Uh, and I, I'll be surprised if that one doesn't get itself pushed out. So uh, they said of the wallpaper stretching problem that um, – they, they, they said this update resolves the following issue. So so just so people know, you've got to go get it. It is <clears> – <throat> and I don't have the number. I must have it here somewhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, KB4539602. So if you just want to be able in the future, even if you're not stretching a, you know, a bitmap today, you may want to do that someday. So KB4539602 will allow you to do that, fixes that problem. And they said, this update resolves the following issue. Addresses an issue that might cause your wallpaper that is set to stretch to display as black. And then they said, important, and boy is it, before you apply this update, see the prerequisites section. Well, now, it's not such a, I don't think it's that big an update in this instance, but but we'll, we'll get there. So the prerequisites are that, you must have the following updates installed before you apply this update. And there are two. There's the one that we talked about uh, way back earlier last year, the SHA2 update. Remember that until I think it was June or July of last summer, the updates were double signed. They all, all the updates from Microsoft carried both an SHA-1 and an SHA-2 signature. And, of course, we were just talking about how SHA-1 has finally pretty much collapsed under, con you know, continual academic pressure. So Microsoft realized, well, it's not good to sign with a to, – to co-sign an update where one of the co-signatures is – now known to be weak. So anticipating that, they removed SHA-1 signatures from their updates. The problem was that Windows 7 needed to be informed about SHA-2 updates. That it, uh, Unless you received this particular knowledge base update, which is 447-4419, you would not be – your Windows 7 would reject the updates as being – uh, invalid because they weren't signed with SHA-1 and it hadn't been taught yet about SHA-2. So that's the first of the two. The second one is kind of mysterious. Um, it's from March of last year, and all they're calling it is a servicing stack update, an SSU, servicing stack update. Um, and that has to be in place also. And I should mention that when I did over the holidays at the beginning of the year, I did a big update uh, catch up for GRC's servers. And and I'm slow in installing updates for <laughs> for reasons we're about to get to. 
uh, here in a minute uh, relative to server. And so I'm kind of glad. And of course, I also have lots of other rings of security uh, surrounding GRC's servers. So they're they're protected in ways that don't that depend much less on Microsoft than a server that's just sitting there <laughs> with with remote uh, uh uh, remote desktop protocol exposed to the internet, for example. <clears throat> but the point was, um, I my ability to get current was crippled by a mystery. It just I wasn't uh, there. I was unable to update one of my two servers, and it was finally when I went back in my logs and saw that this servicing stack update had not installed that I thought, oh well. Okay, the internet is telling me I need that. So I manually installed it and then I was able to bring my machine current. So what's interesting is that Microsoft is saying that you will have automatically received this in Windows Update. But at the same time, they're saying, but if not, make sure you do. Well, I, I don't know what the story is, but I didn't get it automatically and apparently people don't. So you need to have those both. Uh, in order to fix the wallpaper stretch problem. However, it turns out that after installing the fix, uh, the the uh, 4539602 update, and I was supposed to know what that one was. That was not, oh yeah, uh, the wallpaper, uh, the black wallpaper stretching fix. So, okay, so first of all, I should just say, I don't know who, like is going to have a stretched bitmap on a server, I guess, you know, people just think of it as Windows. Uh, I, I just sort of think of my servers as special. I don't like install all kinds of junk on them. And I don't, I don't care what the desktop looks like. Uh, I'm rarely seeing it. But anyway, people applied the fix on Friday and then began getting a notice that you referred to, Leo, uh, oh, wait, no, uh, you referred to the can't shut it down. This is way worse. A after installing the fix for, and this is just like beyond comprehension, after installing the fix for your bitmap stretch being black, that renders Windows Server 2008 R2, which is we know the server version of Windows 7, unbootable. It will no longer boot. Uh, on but any at least instance, your wallpaper's not black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, now, Jeez. now you're no longer being bothered by, bla really by a black wonder. desktop. Good lord! Unbelievable. On any instance of Windows Server 2008 R2, which is lacking those prerequisite updates I noted above, the consequence of attempting to install 4539602 to fix your wallpaper isn't a notice of an update failure or some nice mention about prerequisite updates missing. No, the result is a fully bricked server for reasons only Microsoft knows attempting to fix the desktop wallpaper stretching issue results in the deletion of two critical boot files that live awful. It's unbelievable. Winload.efi, think that might be important, and winload.exe are deleted from they your Windows. In no way be coupled to anything with wallpaper. 
no, no. It's like, what? So anyway, so uh, the window, as a consequence, since Friday, people were installing 602 uh, and their system wouldn't restart. So the community has come up with some solutions. If you, if you, you can, if you boot into the system recovery mode, then that'll kind of get your system basically going. You can get to a command prompt. If you have other Windows 2008 R2 servers that have not been bricked, they'll still have those two files. So if you can copy those files back into the Windows System32 directory, you're, you're, you're recovered. That's all you need to do. Or you can use the, uh, the, the Windows imaging command line, the system imaging command, D-I-S-M. And I have the, the command in the show notes here if, if anyone wants to take that approach and it has these problems and hasn't already figured out how to fix it. D-I-S-M.exe forward slash image colon C colon backslash forward slash cleanup hyphen image forward slash revert pending actions. And so that's a ma- sort of a manual way of undoing what it was that Windows inadvertently did that will bring your system current again. And, and again, my, in my own experience, I mean, had I, I could have easily fallen into this too because the, the, one of those prerequisites, that servicing stack update was missing and, and it wasn't being given to me. I mean, I had other updates subsequent to March when that thing was released, but it just kind of got forgotten. And in this case, uh, that's not good. <laughs> and the hits keep coming because, Leo, as you said, uh, another problem has been afflicting people since the, quote, final, maybe not so final, Patch Tuesday update for Windows 7, which broke the wallpaper. Some people, and I, you got to love the irony of this one, since Microsoft has been frantically working to push everyone off of Windows 7 and over to Windows 10. But now, some Windows 10 users are being told, you don't have permission to shut down this computer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have a picture you of a man, you. <laughs> oh, my Lord. That's crazy. It's just, un- uh, just unbelievable. It, just, yeah. it really underscores how it must be the most horribly written program of, of all. I mean, ridiculous. Yes. I, I had a friend, uh, a, a, a long since ex coworker who was at Microsoft. Uh, he was at Berkeley with me, uh, super smart guy. Then he, oh, no, wait. Yeah. No, I think he, uh, Lauren was definitely an MIT person. So he, he went to MIT. Uh, anyway, uh, we were talking about like the state of Windows many years ago. And he just said, oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> just, if you oh, only oh, knew, Steve, if oh, you only knew. You know, had he and, seen and, it? Had he seen the source code? Did he work at Microsoft? Oh yeah, he was he was deep deep in, and uh, and I had another friend I mentioned who, who was the author, the originator of the whole .NET concept, the the idea of a common language runtime, uh, was uh, the in the brainchild of of actually he was an ex employee of mine, and similarly it's just like, 
oh, we're, doing, we're just trying to leave that behind as quickly as we can. And, and think about it. Um, I didn't have the update for today that is re- ready for today's podcast, but I did notice 99 fixes in today's patch Tuesday. This is Pat. This is the second Tuesday of February for all Windows 8 and Windows 10 users. 99 things fixed, including an IE zero day, another another problem in Internet Explorer actively being exploited in the wild. And and as I said, grumbling last week about how they're constantly changing it. Well, we know if they won't just keep get their leave leave it alone, get their hands off it, it is never going to get fixed. They're going to just this is life now. Is this moving as I called it a smear a win a Windows 10 version smear because they're they're just constantly changing it. So anyway, uh, a number of workarounds have been found for people who are being told they no longer have permission to turn off their own computer. Uh, if you log off, that'll bring you back to the logon screen. And as our, as we know, down in the lower right, there is the option to shut the computer off. You can do that. Uh, apparently, you can do Control-Alt-Delete a few times to get to a similar screen where powering off is an option. That'll avoid this. And there is a, a group policy edit tweak that you can apply, basically giving yourself permission. Imagine that, to turn off the computer. Uh, again, are we going to see an out-of-cycle update? Is Microsoft going to say, okay, maybe we ought to just you know push an update out to people? I don't know. I don't know, like... It's pretty much guaranteed to break something. (laughs) Maybe they unplugged all of those Windows 7 update servers and they're just gone now. Or they they said, let's send them to the Azure cloud. Send them off to a better place. (laughs) I don't know. Unbelievable. Wow. And then just, you know, because this just bugs me. Windows 10 Firefox users are being reminded about Edge. You know, so I figure while I'm on the topic of Microsoft and Windows 10, I suppose anyone who hasn't deliberately turned off the suggestions option, I mean, that's like, that's it's not it's not Candy Crush Soda Saga, but it's up there. I mean, you know, when, when presented with a switch from Microsoft about would I like to have some suggestions, like, no, you have nothing to suggest that I want to know about. So, of course, <laughs> mine's off. Um, anyway, so this is on the start menu. Uh, and maybe you, you didn't know you could turn it off or maybe you left, you left it on because you are interested in what Microsoft may have to suggest. But, you know, uh, as we know, Windows 10 is now free and intended to be a source of, in Microsoft words, quote, significant marketing and profit opportunities moving forward. So this is what we get with this new approach towards an operating system. Um, And I'll just say it's not for the sake of running Windows that we run Windows. Exciting and harrowing, though it can sometimes be, 
Windows is a means to an end. It exists to host and launch other programs. It's an operating system. So it seems a bit unseemly uh, for people with their start menu suggestions still enabled to receive the following selective notice when Microsoft is their deliberately chosen browser. What, pe- what Firefox users are now getting on their start menu. Oh, this pisses me off. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> did yes. I say that out loud? <laughs> yes, you did. I, thank you, Leo. I appreciate your support. This irritates me no end. Isn't that wrong? Doesn't that feel wrong? That it, so up at the top of your start menu, under suggested, it says with the new surf wave edge logo, still using Firefox? What's wrong with you? Microsoft Edge is here. Oh, uh, uh, you know now does every, this every, you, does it say it just once let's hope i don't know <laughs> once is enough that just okay yeah. so you know every week these notes that i publish that you're looking at that i'm reading from that our users uh, our, our our listeners can download they're authored in google docs on chrome because that's the best way i found of doing something like this that's alongside a Firefox browser with a long vertical column of tabs where all of the news of the week I've pulled together and I've and sorted and arranged and put them in, you know, so like p- pulled this, 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 what I want to talk about this week together. And there's an instance of the Thought Manager desktop outliner app. Um, you know, I'm working toward a tentative piece with Windows 10 because Microsoft really hasn't left me or anyone else, any of us, with any practical choice unless we want to just leave the Windows universe. But I don't need their help choosing the best tool for the job. I'm delighted Edge has incorporated Chromium. But to answer your question, yes, Microsoft, I'm still using Firefox. Yeah. Yes, I am. Wow. You got a problem with that, buddy? (laughs) I know. Oh boy, that just you know. Well, you know, it, I mean, it's it's part and parcel of Candy Crush Soda Saga. I mean, it's not there because they want it there. It's there because they're getting paid, and in this case, they're just annoyed that. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess I could see the logic. Maybe somebody used Firefox because the previous Edge didn't work for them somehow. So they're saying, "Oh, like we, you know, we fixed it. Now it re- actually is a good browser." I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, uh. you know they're they're well. We talked about this before. They're making some um, enterprise users change their search from Google to Bing. Yes, I mean yes. this is this is oh. there's some there's somebody at Microsoft doesn't really understand user freedom or something. I don't know. I don't get it. Well, I mean it it is the direction they're going in and. Uh, you know, well, not, never, not I don't know. I wouldn't say unilaterally. The company also supports open source, and I mean, I don't know. And, and they do have Edge based on Chromium, right. which is a you know a good thing. I yeah, somebody in marketing that's just annoying. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> so last week, Google closed an Android remote code execution flaw, which was discovered in the Bluetooth daemon running in Android. 
It has been patched. It was patched last week in Android's February security update. Uh, and, you know, we've been encountering Bluetooth flaws recently. And while they're not good because they are potentially hands-off and at a distance, uh, at least the deliberately lower power, short-range operation of Bluetooth tends, and of course we know that's not an absolute either, because there are you can get directional antennas and you know Pringles cans and things uh, to limit you know th- that the the short rangeness tends to limit the the, the vulnerabilities exportability uh, and severity. Uh, certainly, Wi-Fi vulnerabilities are worse, and Internet TCP flaws are worse still because they work you know on, on a global scale. Um, but in this case. A critical vulnerability was found and fixed in the Bluetooth implementation on Android devices, which could allow, and which is to say does allow, attackers to launch remote code execution attacks without any user interaction. So it's one of those, you know, bad ones where the user who had been compromised would not know it. Last Thursday... After the patch had been pushed out, uh, the researchers who found it revealed additional, but not all, because they're trying to be responsible, details about behind this flaw. It's tracked as CVE 2020-0022. It poses a potential critical severity threat to Android versions Pi, so that's 9, and Oreo. 8.0 and 8.1, which account currently for almost two-thirds of Android devices today, assuming that they've got Bluetooth enabled, as most Android devices probably do for the various... I mean, I, I even find it in, turned on on my things when I've explicitly turned it off. We've talked before about how Apple seems to think they know better, and they keep turning Bluetooth back on for me. It's like, okay, well... I don't need that power drain, and I don't have any Bluetooth ho- things hooked up, and I'd rather not have the risk of one additional radio thing, which could have a problem, exactly as this does. And we've we've that's been our advice on this podcast for years. If you're not using a radio, whatever it is, turn it off because it's not helping you. It's consuming some power, and it's you know creates an inherent vulnerability at a distance. It's analogous uh, to uh, don't turn any services on a, a yes. computer unless you know you're going to use them. Exactly. Yeah, you just open the war oven it up for... Yep. So against 9.0 and, uh, Pi and Oreo, Pi and Oreo, 8.0, 8.1, and 9.0, the researchers said that a remote attacker within Bluetooth range can silently execute arbitrary code <clears throat> with the privilege of the Bluetooth daemon, and it runs in the kernel. The flaw is worrisome because no additional interaction is required, and only the Bluetooth MAC address of the target device needs to be lo- known to launch an attack. Okay, so well, that, that there are a couple reasons that's not comforting because... It turns out that for many devices, the Bluetooth MAC address can be deduced from the Wi-Fi MAC address. They're often sequential. And so 
uh, Wi-Fi is easily known. It's you know it's being broadcast uh, by by the the smartphone's Wi-Fi. So obtaining the Mac uh, the 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 Bluetooth Mac address is a, probably a matter of adding or subtracting one depending upon which phone you're using, and maybe they're all the same. I haven't looked. Um, the same vulnerability does impact Google's most recent Android version 10. However, with Android 10, the severity rating is dropped to moderate rather than critical because the impact is not a remote code execution. As a consequence of other changes made in Android 10, it will crash the Bluetooth daemon, but it won't give you remote code execution access. Um, and they did not test any Android versions older than 8. Um, so we don't know either way whether those may be affected. <clears throat> the flaws discoverers said they are confident all patches, they, they said, sorry, once they are confident, I put confident in quotes in the show notes because you'll hear, you'll see where I'm going. All patches have reached the end users. They will publish a technical report on the flaw that includes a description of the exploit as well as proof of concept code. The trouble is, all of us here know that a great many Android devices running Oreo and Pi are never going to receive an update. So, I mean, even like even Windows systems that are like have automatic updates universally applied somehow manage not to receive them. So we, we know that many suppliers of Android, you know, lower end Android devices aren't being responsible with pushing updates out to their customers. So those people who have an, who are not receiving updates for Oreo and Pi, two thirds of the current Android install base, we don't know how, what percentage are receiving updates. <clears throat> they will now probably forever be vulnerable to the possibility of an engineered proximity takeover and malware installation. Uh, and uh, we know that completely descriptive documentation, including a working proof of concept, will be made available shortly. Maybe they'll wait a week. Maybe they'll wait two weeks. But, you know, maybe a month. It doesn't matter. A huge percentage of devices are not going to fi get fixed. And this is precisely the sort of powerful and persistent vulnerability that the powers that be, hostile powers, uh, border uh, shenanigans, you know, go, go crossing into China, you know, wherever, where people say, oh, yeah, I got some stuff installed on my phone. Well, this is going to like, here's a new way for that to happen for anybody whose phone is sufficiently vulnerable. You don't even, you know, they, they don't even have to take your phone behind a screen somewhere. Uh, they can just, you know, figure out that this is you or maybe just try everybody who's moving through and, and see uh, how many uh, phones they're able to install some backdoor spyware onto. So this is really bad. Um, we've said it before. And it bears repeating. Today's smartphones are seen by bad guys as a huge target of opportunity. Um, and, and just as no one today 
wants to use an operating system that's no longer receiving security updates, people should be reluctant in the extreme to use any smartphone whose manufacturer does not have a solid track record of providing updates. It's true that such after-sale support comes at a cost. The cheapest phones won't have it. But in this case, you really are getting something valuable for the money. So I, I just can't imagine, Leo, using a phone that is not from a major manufacturer that is known to be responsibly putting out updates and to, to be doing it for the service life of the phone. It's not good enough to say, oh, we're going to do it for three years, and, and then, but you keep using the phone afterwards. Or as, as an end user, you have to have the, the, the self-control to say, okay, updates have stopped. I'm going to update to a newer phone. It just, you just have to. Um, Jonathan Knudsen, who's the senior security strategist at Synopsys, said of CVE 2020-0022, he said, it can be exploited by anyone within range of your vulnerable phone who can determine your Bluetooth MAC address, which is not difficult. He said, as a user, keeping current with updates and applying them in a timely manner is important. Unfortunately, many vulnerable, slightly older phones will not have continuing software update support from the manufacturer, which means users are faced with two unattractive options, either disable Bluetooth entirely, and certainly that's a good way to do it, and <laughs> make sure it stays off, or get a newer phone. So the February uh, patch roundup for Android included patches for 25 bugs with 19 of those vulnerabilities rated high. There were four others that were high, but they were specifically tied to Qualcomm chipsets used inside Android devices. So this was, you know, the most worrisome of those. Um, if, uh, if you happen, if you're listening to this and you've got an Android phone that didn't get updated last week, uh, you need it to be updated or turn Bluetooth off if you're concerned that, you know, if you're a target of opportunity, if you're a little unnerved by the idea that in a couple of weeks, full disclosure will, will be provided. All the bad guys in the world will know how to do this to any Android devices. Uh, you know, not that old either, you know, Pi and Oreo uh, that haven't had updates. That's just, it's, you, you can't use a smartphone that isn't on the update flow. And Leah, let's take our second break. I'm going to sip right. on some coffee and then we will talk about how the uh, forecast appears cloudy for Clearview. <laughs> Clearview. Oh, there's a name that will live in infamy. Our show today brought to you by a good name for anybody who likes IT, IT Pro TV. We love IT Pro TV. Tim and Don, who created IT Pro TV, used to be IT trainers back in the day. They used to, you know, in the classroom setting. And they would teach people the skills they need to take the test, to get the certs, to get that job in IT. Nice little sideline. Then they saw Twit. They were fans of Tech TV back in the day. They went to a NAB presentation. I was part of a panel talking about this new thing of streaming. And they said, we should stream our classes. And IT Pro TV was born. 
and it has grown. It has become an amazing resource for anybody who loves IT or wants to get into IT. They've got uh, five now full-time HD studios with some of the best instructors in the world, people who are IT professionals who also teach amazingly. And so they're giving you, you can watch live Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. If you do that, you can be in their chat room. They have a chat room just like we do. But you can also watch on demand. And you would get training in any area of IT you're interested in. So this is designed for two different groups. People who aren't yet in IT, people who have a job, but they think, I, you know, I like technology. If you listen to this show, you should be in IT, honestly. I like technology. Uh, maybe it'd be kind of fun to work in it. And to get that first job is hard because, you know, all you could say is, well, I've been doing this my whole life, but they don't have any, you know, proof of that. You don't have any references. So that's why the certs exist. These are certifications you can get, and there's hundreds of them in every area. I'll give you a good example of CompTIA certs. So for desktop IT, there's the A-plus cert. If you're a network guru, it's Network Plus. If you want to get an IT security, there's Security Plus. These certificates get you in the door. Somebody sees those, they go, oh, well, you've got those skills. I know you do. And there are many, many certificates, Microsoft certificates, uh, all kinds, Cisco. I mean, there are many, many certificates. And every one of them, my favorite is the Certified Ethical Hacker Certificate. I think it's from ISC Squared. You can get that, too, from, from IT Pro TV. They teach them all. In fact, they're uh, the official video training partner for CompTIA. So they have all the on-demand courses for all the CompTIA certs. That's fantastic. Free members, and this could be you right now. You could watch the live stream every day, no cost. Watch as it's created, just as you might sometimes watch Security Now live. And you don't have to, you don't have to pay anything for that. You're going to want to get a, a, a subscription because there's other excellent, useful tools, including a chance to take the test before you take the test, practice exams. They have Windows servers and uh, Windows clients. You can run with from any HTML5 browser. You could do it from a Chromebook. Uh, you can configure them. You can set them up. You can learn with them. It is a really great... They've done such a great job. They've built an amazing thing. Over 4,000 hours of, of training now in their library. And that... that uh, they're all up to date. So that number includes brand new stuff and, and then does not include stuff that they've aged out because they've got, well, we're going to update this. They're always updating it. They're always making it new. So this is 4,000 hours of current IT training in every area of IT. It's very affordable. It's binge-worthy. If you love this stuff, if you're, if you're watching this show, in fact, I know many, of the, I would guess 80 or 90% of the IT Pro TV customers, the students there, our Security Now listeners. I know when we went to the uh, grand opening of their new studios, everybody said, say hi to Steve, say hi to Steve. They just love Steve. So if you like this, you will love IT Pro TV. See how IT Pro TV can make it easy to get into IT, to grow your career. That's the other group, people who are already in IT, who want to learn new skills or polish up old skills. They got that too. Go to itpro.tv slash security now. Use the code sn 30 and you'll get 30% off. And you'll get 30% off forever. As long as you stay active, you'll get 30% off. ITPro.tv slash security now. The offer code is SN30 for an additional 30% off for the lifetime of your active subscription. That's a good deal. 
IT Pro TV. Build or expand your IT career. Enjoy the journey. Uh, I'm just thrilled that you know we're in partnership with them. It's been a great relationship since they started. IT Pro now I think they have 160,000 students. <laughs> IT Pro dot TV. Okay, Steve, back to you. So uh, last week we talked about the Clearview AI company who were doing the facial recognition uh, and bragging that they scraped the web for 3 billion face prints and made them available to 600 police departments so they could identify people within seconds. Since then, Clearview has increased their collection of cease and desist letters, which is not exactly what they were hoping to be collecting, from major U.S. social media players. The first one they they received was from Twitter a couple weeks ago when Twitter told Clearview to stop collecting its data and to delete whatever it had. In addition, Facebook has similarly demanded that Clearview stop scraping photos because the, that action violates Facebook's policies. And now Google and YouTube are also both telling Clearview to stop violating their policies against data scraping. Clearview's take on this is defiance. Uh, the CEO, Hon Tan That, was interviewed last Wednesday morning on CBS's This Morning uh, news show. Uh, he told listeners to trust him. He said, the technology is only to be used by law enforcement and only to identify potential criminals. Tan That claims that the results, which, which is not encouraging, are 99.6% accurate. I guess, though, you, you wouldn't want to be misidentified. You wouldn't want a false positive to misidentify you as a bad guy. So I guess accuracy is, is a better thing. Um, and he also claimed that it's his right to collect public photos to feed into his facial recognition archive. He said, there's also a First Amendment right to public information. So the way we have built our system is to only take publicly available information and index it that way. And we, by the way, there was a recent Supreme Court decision having to do, or was it Supreme Court, but maybe Ninth Circuit Court, having to do with scraping of LinkedIn in which they ruled, yep, you can't stop scraping. If it's public information... Yep. You can't stop it. In fact, I have that. I have a, men, a mention of that here. Uh, so we know from last week when we talked about this that in, in, in Illinois, at least, with their BIPA, <laughs> the Biometric Information Privacy Act, uh, you know, it's illegal there. Uh, and YouTube's statement read, quote, YouTube's terms of service explicitly forbid collecting data that can be used to identify a person. Clearview has publicly admitted to doing exactly that. And in response, we sent them a cease and desist letter. Um, as for Facebook, uh, Facebook said last Tuesday that it has demanded that Clearview stop scraping photos because the action violates its policies. Um, uh, uh, Facebook said we have serious concerns that Clearview's practices, which is – uh, with sorry, serious concerns with Clearview's practices, which is why we've requested information as part of our ongoing review. How they respond will determine the next steps we take, which I'm sure Facebook intended to sort of sound ominous. Um, 
and uh, uh, taunt that defended Clearview as being a Google-like search engine. He said, Google can pull in information from all different websites. If it's public and it can be inside, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, if it's public and it can be inside Google's search engine, it can be in ours as well. Google disagreed, saying that Clearview isn't at all like their search engine. Google said, there's a big difference between what we do and the way you're shanghaiing everyone's face images without their consent. Most websites want to be included in Google search, and we give webmasters control over what information from their site is included in our search results, including the option to opt out entirely. Google said Clearview secretly collected image data of individuals without their consent and in violation of rules explicitly forbidding them from doing so. So the question is, when is public information not public? Which brings me to the point you raised, Leo. Back in 2016, a company called HiQ, which I recall we talking about at the time, a San Francisco startup was marketing two products which depended upon whatever data LinkedIn's 500 million members had chosen to make public. There was the, the first product they called Keeper, which identified employees who might be ripe for being recruited, and Skills Mapper summarized a LinkedIn member's skills. In that instance, HiQ was amassing public information, grabbing the same material that anyone could get from LinkedIn without having to log in. So any browser would display the same information HiQ was vacuuming up, organizing, and reselling. Um, uh, and when sufficiently analyzed, inferences could be made to alert companies, for example, when their pivotal employees might be interviewing for another position. And you can do much more, as we know, with Jeez. this kind of advanced informatics. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You, you, you put a flag to be notified when, when any of your employees' LinkedIn profiles indicate maybe they're, you know, uh, taking the, that longer lunch break was a little more than a lunch break. Mm. Okay, so in the case of HiQ, LinkedIn sent a cease and desist letter alleging that it was violating serious anti-hacking and anti-copyright violation laws, and LinkedIn cited the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the CFAA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the, the DMCA that we've talked about so much, and California Penal Code uh, Section 502C, whatever that is, LinkedIn, uh, which, which when this is a little interesting aside, had been exploring how to do the same thing with its own data that HiQ had achieved, also noted that it had blocked HiQ from accessing its data. And as you mentioned, it was just this, la this past September in 2019, an appeals court told LinkedIn to back off and that it had no legal right to interfere with HiQ's profiting from its users' publicly available data. The court protected data scraping of public data in what at first looks like a major legal precedent, but it's actually a lot less clear. Our friends at the Electronic Frontier Foundation wrote, quote, 
While this decision represents an important step to putting limits on using the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, because you know the, the concern has been that it's being abused, uh, to intimidate researchers with the legalese of cease and desist letters, the Ninth Circuit sadly left the door open to other claims, such as trespass to chattels or even copyright infringement that might allow actors like LinkedIn to limit competition with its products. So essentially, the Ninth Circuit didn't go as far as our EFF folks wished it had. But in this case, at least it said, hey, uh, you you LinkedIn are not uh, lawfully allowed to prevent somebody from visiting your site with automated scrapers and obtain whatever information has been made public by your users. Um, and of course, the problem is the, the, the CFAA, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, is broadly written and subject to multiple conflicting interpretations across different federal circuits. This makes it likely that the Supreme Court will ultimately be forced to resolve the meaning of terms which are not really clear. The CFAA says, for example, without authorization. Well, people want to take without authorization the way that they want to. Uh, and this, of course, is bad. This, this occurs with broadly uh, written le legislation that just ends up having to – it's a problem for everyone and ends up having to get resolved in the courts. Um, the EFF's surveillance litigation director <laughs> – there, there is such a, a person – the, their surveillance litigation director, Jennifer Lynch, said that Clearview is the latest example. So now we're talking about Clearview, the the the, the facial scraping people. Uh, that doesn't sound right. Facial. Well, anyway, uh, a, is the latest. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, you can get that done. Keeps your skin soft. Uh, yeah, it's covered by insurance. Is the latest example of why we need laws that ban or at least pause pending more clarification, law enforcement's secretive use of facial biometric recognition. She cited many cases of what she called law enforcement's and Clearview's specifically abuse of facial recognition, stating, quote, police abuse of facial recognition technology is not theoretical. It's happening today. Law enforcement has already used live face recognition on public streets and at political protests. And of course, as we've observed before, this is all being enabled by the recent incredible reductions in cost. The cost of processing power has crashed. The cost of mass storage has collapsed. The cost and presence of ubiquitous networking communications just doesn't cost anything anymore to send data all, you know, massive data all over the place. We didn't have this 10 years ago. And Leo, uh, although the podcast will have run out by the t by 10 years from now, uh, we'll still be around and we'll see what, what we have 10 <laughs> we'll years from now. We'll see if anybody now. recognizes us. <laughs> uh, the NIST is testing methods of recovering data from smashed smartphones. Uh and, you know, it makes sense when you think about it. There's been a lot of discussion through the years about how to best irreversibly kill a hard drive. Uh, and we talked recently, not too long ago, about this. One of my favorites since 
um, many modern hard drive platters are now being made of glass. You can often take a hard drive, kind of like um, what was it we used to smash? Bit of honey, but no, no, not, not bit oh, of honey. A it was like silver those, hammer. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. You, you you can take a. Yeah, it was bit of uh, honey. Uh, uh, it was there was there was a that big white thing that was chewy. Laffy uh, taffy. I remember. Yeah, you you, you, you used Turkish to smash it. Bonomo. It was Bonomo. Uh, oh well. And it, yeah, you smash it and it'd be little pieces and you yeah, eat it. And, it and, and and then you peel the paper off. Yeah. And it's like all got little. It was good. Bitty, you know. Loved that. Chew, yeah. Anyway, it turns <laughs> out you can do that with with many hard drives. You take a hard drive, just smash it face down onto the concrete or asphalt or something, a hard surface, and then if you shake it, bring, put it up next to your ear and shake it, if you hear the sound of lots of little bitty fragments, then you know. But how do you, you know you got all the platters? Yeah, that's true. Chances we, are. I know this is true because 20 years ago, Patrick Norton, we were showing people how to destroy hard drives, and he opened up a hard drive. Because so, usually it's pretty easy to unscrew a hard drive. You just need a Torx, a Torx wrench. Yeah. yeah. Pull out the things. There's th three, four, five platters. In the case of the 16 terabytes, I don't know, 28 platters. And then he said, and watch, I could just, and he hit it with a hammer. He didn't know it was glass. He thought it was going to be metal. He was going to bend it. <laughs> and shards of glass flew everywhere. We weren't wearing protective eyewear. This is live television. We're very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about face scraping. I mean, I... Wow. That was... I, anyway, yes. So this is nothing new. They've been made out of glass in some cases anyway for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it just turns out it, it's uh, glass is a fluid and it is an easier substance to work with to get the huh. the level of smoothness that oh, you yeah, need course, in yeah. order to fly heads as close to these things uh, as they are but what about an entirely solid state smartphone uh we talked about it just a couple weeks ago one of those guys had shot one of his two smartphones and the fbi claimed to have brought it back to life yeah. which i think is a miracle by the way you got any bit uh, honey because i got a hammer <laughs> Uh, hmm. uh, the bad guys it turns out this is a thing bad guys are now smashing their phones uh drowning them in water shooting them with a gun what do they know. do doesn't he throw it in the microwave on mr robot oh those are the little sim cards he'd throw in the microwave yeah, yeah. you don't want to do that I mean but that, that would be rough you used, used to be able to put a um a, a, a cd an audio cd yeah, in the spark. microwave and it would yeah. make all kind of sparkliness yeah. and things yeah don't do that at um, home, kids. It's not so. A the good question idea. is, so the question is, how effective is physically destroying a smartphone? It turns out that many criminals have discovered to their chagrin that reducing their devices to smashed plastic and glass means nothing if the device's little black epoxy memory chips have managed to survive. Forensic engineers who work with police to gather evidence have become quite adept at performing like amazing feats <coughs> of posthumous data extraction. With more and more evidence now sitting on smartphones, a better understanding of what works and what doesn't has been grow has been a turned into a growing issue of some urgency. So our U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, recently conducted a series of tests 
using 10 popular Android smartphones, which had accumulated a mix of data during their simulated use. The NIST engineers and their forensic partners then attempted to extract the data from the surviving memory chips using various methods to compare with the original data set. In some cases, the chips could be left attached to the original motherboard and accessed via the JTAG serial interface, which all systems have. JTAG uh, is an industry standard serial communications protocol for testing and programming electronics. Um, in other cases, the chips were physically removed from their original motherboards and then interconnected to directory uh, directly, uh, sort of an in vitro data extraction. Uh, so the NIST wrote in their report, the, compa the comparison showed that both JTAG and chip off extracted, uh, that's what they call it, where they have to remove the chip from the board, were able to extract the data without altering it, but that some of the software tools were better at interpreting the data than others, especially for data from so-called uh, or from from social media apps. Uh, and, and as I was reading this and thinking about it, I thought, yeah, that's a good point. It's one thing to have access to the raw, presumably unencrypted. I think that's why they chose Android phones uh, data. But you still need to be able to make heads or tails of what you have. I mean, it, it's a chip, you know, so it's like, OK, here's the contents of this this grid of bits. Now you got to make sense of it. Um, either way, it's a big ask to like to to tell some guy, okay, here's a destroyed phone. Uh, <laughs> we need to know what data is in here. Um, it turns out that there are trained forensics people whose days are spent doing this. Um, uh, they have an expert at NIST, Rick Ayers, who said many labs have an overwhelming workload and some of these tools are very expensive. To be able to look at a report and say this tool will work better than another for a particular case can be a big advantage. So essentially they're, they're, they're sort of trying to create some decision framework for forensic data recovery. What really peaked up uh, uh, or I guess peaked my interest was that Celebrite, the, the company and the technology that we've spoken of often here, was one of the two systems that was used. Um, I've got a link to a PDF in the show notes to uh, the, it, it, the, the PDF is titled Test Results for Binary Image, JTAG and Chip Off Decoding and Analysis Tool, Celebrite Universal Forensic Extraction Device, UFED. And that's an acronym that we've seen before and talked about. So they call it the, the Celebrite Universal Forensic Extraction Device Physical Analyzer, and it's now at version 7.20.0.123. Um, and it is interesting to scroll through this. Um, uh, the, uh, there, 
lo- located in Persephone, New Jersey, uh, at Seven Campus Drive. We know that from the report. And the results summary said Celebrite's physical analyzer is a versatile mobile forensic solution that runs on physical hardware. I'm sorry, that runs on existing hardware. It comes with a suite of applications, peripherals, and accessories. Physical Analyzer was tested for its ability to decode and analyze binary images created by performing chip-off and JTAG data extractions from supported mobile devices. Except for the following anomalies, the tool was able to decode and report all supported data objects completely and accurately for all mobile devices tested. And so what we have is a list of a few exceptions for there were some standalone files for an HTC One Mini in the chip off that I guess that had a problem with. There were some social media related data uh, that um, an LG K7 chip off extraction had a problem with. The ZTE 970 chip off had a problem with, and that related to some Twitter data that they could not recover. Uh, The HTC One XL, where the chip had been removed, the HTC Desire S, with its chip had been removed, Uh, and then two HTC phones where JTAG, the JTAG serial interface was used, had some problem uh, reconstructing some Facebook data. But by and large... We're talking about uh, 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 contact. Oh, oh, it says in, in, in the report here, they were able to to recover and perfectly reconstruct deleted contacts, calendar, memo note entries recovered from the HTC Desire 626, ZTE 970, the Moto E, the Samsung S2, the HTC One XL, and the Samsung S4. They were able to pull deleted contacts and calendar entries from the LG K7 and HTC Desire S. Deleted contacts and memo entries were recovered from the HTC One Mini. Uh, Deleted call logs were recovered from the LG K7, the Moto E, Samsung S2, Samsung S4, and HTC Desire S. They were able to pull deleted SMS entries recovered from the HTC Desire 626 and a bunch of others, and bookmark entries recovered from the HTC Desire 626 and others. So I I thought this would be interesting to our listeners because, I mean, this demonstrates um, that you you can't you know crack your phone in half or apparently even shoot it with a bullet. Uh, you need to you know if you were someone for I mean even for benign purposes you know these are reconstructed deleted data from the memory is being is being completely recovered by this Celebrite forensic analysis tool. So this stuff is real. And essentially what it means is you need to take your phone apart and drill and get your drill and drill a hole through all of the little black uh, chips that you see on your phone. uh, If you really and truly want to keep solid state memory from being recoverable, Um, you know, these were not forensically wiped. 
if you were able to do a really good forensic overwrite of the data, then that would have rendered them unrecoverable. But failing that, uh, you know, you really need to reduce this thing to, to reduce solid state storage to a state where it is where the individual components of it are clearly destroyed. Otherwise, if, if anybody had sufficiently, uh, you know, sufficient motivation to reconstruct the data, uh, apparently this is something that is now just, I mean, there are people who spend their days doing this. And the NIST has, oh, the, the, the other issue that I didn't bring up that was, was mentioned was the issue of the chain of evidence. So in order for a, uh, you know, a, a defense attorney not to be able to poke holes in this, it's necessary for this, for this to be done in, uh, in conditions that are where the, the chain of evidence is not broken. Uh, so, you know, labs need to be certified and the, the, the phones need to be handled appropriately and so forth. But the point is, it is really and truly a thing to be able to recover data from a phone, even if it really looks very sad. <laughs> it may still have some vital components that are intact and that's all it takes, which, wow, you know, it's just like it really does happen. Okay, and on the brighter side, actually, that's a pun because this title, the, the paper was titled Brightness. This is from our yet another data exfiltration technique of the week department. The title of the paper, Brightness, leaking sensitive data from air-gapped workstations via, yes, screen brightness. Um, oh, my God. I know. <laughs> But these are the guys uh, from, at, at, at the uh, Ben Gurion University and the, and the Department of Electrical and Electronics Engineering at the Shamoon College of Engineering, both in Israel. These are the guys that have done some amazing stuff before. Uh, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Their abstract from their paper, I have the link to the PDF here in the show notes. They said, air-gapped computers are systems that are kept isolated from the internet since they store or process sensitive information. In this paper, we introduce an optical covert channel in which an attacker can leak or exfiltrate sensitive information from air-gapped computers through manipulations <laughs> of the screen brightness. This it makes covert sense, though. It's like a semaphore. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This covert channel is invisible and it works even while the user is working on the computer. Malware on a compromised computer can obtain sensitive data, files, images, encryption keys, passwords, whatever, and modulate it within the screen brightness <laughs> invisible to users. The small changes in the brightness are invisible to humans but can be recovered from video streams taken by cameras such as a local security camera, a smartphone camera, or a webcam. We present related work and discuss the technical and scientific background of this covert channel. We examine the channel's boundaries under various parameters with different types of computer and TV screens and at several distances. 
We also tested different types of camera receivers to demonstrate the covert channel. Hmm. Lastly, we present relevant countermeasures to this type of attack. Okay, so first of all, these what I what's fun about these guys is they take strange things and like really wrestle them all the way to the ground. Uh, we've talked about the topic before, and this appears to be a particular hobby horse for these guys. In previous years, we've covered their serious research into all manner of air-gapped computer data exfiltration. They're the guys that, that, that you know, they, they talked about ways of getting data out through PC speakers, blinking LEDs, infrared lights in surveillance cameras, and, remember this one, Leo, even modulating the rotation rate of a computer's cooling fans. That was their, their famous, they called it fan smitter research. Uh, and it demonstrates that, yes, where there's a will, there's a way. They were actually changing, slightly changing the fan speed and, and using the fact that that could be audibly detected as bits. And I don't remember now how many different levels of speed. Maybe it was three bits. So they were like eight different speed levels. And they were so able to do pull eight bits at a time. It wasn't fast, but they were able to do it. So my first reaction to this was to wonder what computer containing data worthy of exfiltration with, through such measures would tolerate having its screen within the view of a camera of any kind. So that seemed, you know, a little bit a little bit far fetched. You needed to to have an environment where that could happen. But they have a seven-page research paper, uh, and they tackled the problem with their usual thoroughness, uh, just as they tackled the question of how many bits per second can we transmit with the sound of uh, the a, a, a fan's speed being varied. Anyway, they conclude, undeterred, after seven pages, in this paper, we present an optical covert channel in which data is concealed on the LCD screen brightness invisibly to users. Um, they talk about, I think it was a 3% change in brightness where, where that was enough to electronically detect it from a video, from a video recording of a surveillance camera while the user just sat there looking at it, but there was no obvious change to the user. Uh, they say we exploit the limitations of bare human vision concerning brightness perception using sufficiently low values of contrast between the brightness levels. Consequently, the current results demonstrate the feasibility of our covert channel while outlining its boundaries. Notably, this kind of covert channel is not monitored by existing data leakage prevention systems. So... Yep, you could, you know, slightly uh, change the intensity of a screen in order to send a one or a zero. Uh, you need some fancy coding in order to do that. But, you know, self-clocking technologies for data exist. That's what hard drives use. So it's possible to do it. Uh, and these guys figured out, like, what the maximum baud rate was. It would still take a long time. But 
Remember that there, we do have many high-value secrets that are not very long, like an elliptic key. Well, we like elliptic keys because they're short. They're much easier to handle, and, they're, and they get processed more quickly. Unfortunately, they also get exfiltrated more quickly. So anyway, just an, another a little wacky bit of uh, data exfiltration research. And with that, Leo, we're about to talk about promiscuous cookies and the changes coming to them. I'm so excited. <laughs> so before we do that, may I mention uh, our third and final sponsor for the show today? Uh, a little somebody we like to call Melissa. Bad data happens to good companies. Melissa is the leader in address verification. Every address in the Melissa database from Adelaide, Australia to Zipakita, Colombia, and everywhere in between. Bad data is bad for everybody. It's bad for a company. It's bad for your customers. It hurts your sales. It decreases customer satisfaction. It costs you money. If bad addresses or duplicate records or bouncing emails are hurting your business, come clean with Melissa. They're the pros. They're the guys. They're the ones. They're, they are the experts in sanitizing your data. Delta Fawcett uses Melissa. You know them, right? They uh, actually use it in their call center using uh, uh, the data uh, from Melissa. By the way, Melissa has a very good API, so I think they use the API to create uh, a global address autocomplete for their call center that saves them a lot of time, plus makes those makes sure those addresses are accurate which is kind of important too. Z1 Motorsports uses Melissa. They were able to reduce fraudulent e-commerce tra transactions by 90%. Nice. Because they could do the address verification, build it into their shopping cart. Melissa provides a full spectrum of data quality protection for your customer data. Verify postal addresses, mobile numbers, email addresses. You can automatically update the addresses of customers that have moved. You can eliminate duplicate records. I, I, I mentioned this last time. I kept getting the same catalog, thick catalog from Restoration Hardware, like two, three, or four of them, all to the same address. If they'd had Melissa, they would have said, oh, we only need to send the one. Instead, I said, send me no more. So they lost a customer. See, that's not good either. Melissa would have saved me. Just one, that's all I need, one catalog. You'll get additional insight into your uh, data. Melissa's analytics can actually take the data and give you insight like, well, you know, 53% from Delaware or whatever, whatever it is. Easily build address verification and customer data validation into your application with Melissa's API. They've got, of course, connectors for, well, CML, CRM cloud connectors for uh, e-commerce. They've got plugins. You can, it's as simple as just uploading a customer file to them. Your mailing list, get a quick data cleanse. In fact, I'm going to tell you how you can do that for free in a second. Melissa is serious about securely managing your data. I just want to reassure you on this. They continually undergo independent security audits to reinforce their commitment to data security, privacy, and handle all the compliance requirements. That's why they're SOC2 certified, HIPAA compliant, GDPR compliant. You know, I didn't know this. Mailers waste $20 billion every year in mail that can't be delivered, which doesn't even talk about the duplicates you know, the stuff they don't get bounced back. Don't lose customers. Don't lose money. Make every address count. Bad data happens to good companies. Don't let it happen to you. 10,000 organizations worldwide trust Melissa to get their customer data clean and accurate. Get started today. 25,000 records clean for free. You upload them. They clean them, download them. 
just like lickety split like that. It's $75 value. Go to melissa.com slash twit. M-E-L-I-S-S-A. Just like the, the lady's name. Melissa.com slash twit. Or you can call them. You want to talk to somebody, call 1-800-MELISSA. They're nice people to find out more. Melissa. Success starts with clean data. Go to Melissa right now. Melissa.com slash twit. Thank you, Melissa, for a great product and for supporting security. Now. Now let's talk so about Leo, cookies. Yes. In a, in a minute, I wanted you to tell our listeners about some news that just broke in the Washington Post. I saw I, this. I did not have a chance to Big come up story. to speed fully. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. I'll let you uh, go ahead and then I'll uh, get the story up. Oh, okay. So, uh, so I, well, I guess I, I just Or you want to talk about it now? Well, I don't know. I, I, I didn't know how much you knew about it. If you knew anything more than just the headline that that the CIA was behind a basically a fraudulent yeah. crypto company. We talked about and, it on MacBreak Weekly. Right. Since the 40s. <laughs> Since oh. the 40s. Crypto AG. It was, everybody thought, a Swiss company. But in fact, it was owned outright by the CIA and West German intelligence. Wow. They were making uh, code... Coding hardware, like Enigma machine style things. And uh, according to the Post, they rigged the CIA and the West German intelligence rigged the company's devices so they could break the codes the company countries used to send encrypted messages. The decades long arrangement among the most closely guarded secrets of the Cold War is laid bare in a classified comprehensive CIA history of the operation obtained by the Washington Post and ZDF, a German public Ooh. broadcaster. Uh, it was codenamed Thesaurus, later Rub Rubicon. The CIA report concludes it was the intelligence coup of the century. Foreign governments were paying good money to the U.S. and West Germany for the privilege of having their most secret communications oh. read by at least two and possibly as many as five or six foreign countries. It, the 1979 hostage crisis, they were monitoring the Iran mullahs. The, uh, they fed intelligence about Argentina's military to the British during the Falklands War. I mean, it's it's stunning, but it underscores something I've said for a long time. You, the only kind of crypto you should use is open source. If it's a yeah. if it's a binary blob, if it's a black box, you don't know who's on the other side. You got to use open source, and then at least Matthew Green can look at it <laughs> and tell you yeah. it's okay, right? Yeah, well, and, and of course, that's the way we have to go with voting systems in this Same country. Thing. Is yep. it just it 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 would be fine for for Diebold to manufacture the hardware, <laughs> and and to sell it, but they've got to be using something that that has been heavily scrutinized. So it can still be a profit center. It just you know, but we just have to not have the software be part of what's proprietary. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't that an amazing okay. story? I thought wow. you were gonna. I thought you wanted to talk about the fact that Microsoft has apparently backed down on Bing jacking. They, <laughs> Kearney, our good friends at Bleeping Computer. Yay. Yay, Microsoft. I knew they would do this at some point, backpedaling on forcing Bing search for Office 365 users. Uh, Mary Jo Foley and Paul will be doing a little dance. Microsoft says... <laughs> yeah. It heard customers' concerns. By the way, the company planned to roll this value out. So they're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, good. Good. Oh, and stop man. telling Firefox users yes. 
to, to, to change browsers. I'm in Italy. That's just wrong. Okay, so promiscuous cookies. Um, this is relevant to us at the moment because Chrome 80 appeared last week with its implementation of the updated handling of, of an optional cookie property called same site. Uh, we first noted that this was happening last May. We talked about it briefly at the time. There was an IETF draft uh, from Google which proposed a change to the default behavior for uh, when when cookie behavior was non-specified. This all revolves around third-party cookies. We've we've you know talked about them a lot. A third-party cookie is a cookie from a, a, a cookie that the browser returns to a domain other than the one that provided the page that you're looking at. So, you know, famously, this is the way advertisers track us, is that an advertiser presents their bit of content in a, in a window on a web page. And even though this, it was never intended for this reason, browsers have always honored by default third-party cookies. Notably, Safari never has. I, I've always thought Apple was just on the ball for this. Of course, it does demonstrate there are other ways to track people than cookies. But cookies is like the official means for maintaining state. But the ad is not the first party, which is the, the site that you're visiting. It's coming from a third-party server. And then, of course, if you go to some other location, some other website – that is also being served an ad from the same ad server, well, your browser returns the same cookie at this other site as it returned from the previous site. That links you. That's the way tracking happens. So the, 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 the problem is there are other abuses, uh, cross-site request forgeries, which are a real problem for web applications, which also involve a sort of a different flavor of abuse of third-party cookies, um, not relative to, to tracking, but but spoofing session state uh, in, in a way that can be used to steal credentials. So last May, in the abstract from a guy from Google, uh, and this is what I remember sharing last summer, he says, this document proposes two changes to cookies – Inspired by the properties of the HTTP state tokens mechanism proposed in, and then there's another document reference. Now, we should mention that HTTP state tokens is a maybe we're going to someday get this replacement for cookies. So, so I guess the point is that the engineers who are moving our, the web web technology forward, they fully recognize that cookies, well, the, the world has changed dramatically since cookies were first created. Cookies have been overtaxed with the things that they're being asked to do. So it would be wonderful if we could design a proper HTTP state token mechanism 
like to to correctly do what it was that cookies were originally created by Netscape in back in the beginning of all this to handle. Problem is, change is difficult. I mean, even this change, the change we're talking about today, about about cookie promiscuity, is turning out to be difficult, as we'll see. Um, but so this guy is saying the document proposes two changes to cookies inspired by the properties of the HTTP state tokens mechanism. What happened was out of that discussion came an awareness that cookies could be fixed a little bit without throwing them out completely. So he says, first, cookies should be treated as, and, and there, there, there's an expression, same site equals lax by default. Um, uh, there is, um, there is a, a, um, uh, I can't think of the name, an attribute. That's what, that's the word I want. An attribute, which cookies can be given. Cookies can, for example, be given the attribute of secure, in which case no browser will send a cookie that was, uh, that it has for a site to a, over a non-secure connection. In other words, HTTPS has to be present if the cookie has the attribute tag secure. Similarly, there and there are a number of different types of attribute tags. For example, expires is, an, is, is another one. How long should the browser keep this before letting it go? Uh, and if, if there is no expires, uh, date or time, then it's in, it's automatically a session cookie so that it will not save it in, in permanent memory. It will, as soon as you close the browser, the browser forgets that cookie, which can be useful uh, in some instances. Another attribute is same site. And that can have the values of, it, first of all, it could be not, it cannot be specified at all, or it can explicitly have the value of none, lacks, or strict, and we, we we should think of it as same site enforcement. In other words, you could have no you could have no enforcement of same of same site handling. You could have lax enforcement or strict enforcement. So this guy's saying that first of all, we, he's proposing that the default, which has been none, that is no same site enforcement should be treated, should be elevated to lax by default, which is a big change. That is, so if, if, if there's no specification, rather than the no specification, meaning, okay, no, uh, no ch change in same site enforcement, then uh, we're going to change this so that there will be a change. And he said, secondly, cookies that explicitly assert same site none in order to enable cross-site delivery should also be marked as secure. So he's, so this guy is proposing these two changes. We're going to change, we're going to change the default to tighten the cross-site handling of cookies in two ways. <clears throat> and I'll explain it. The, the, the first one here in a second the second of those is that if somebody had explicitly said we want no change, same side equals none, that from now on that will only be done over a secure connection. 
even even if secure isn't explicitly stated. That is, it 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 that that becomes now part of the spec. So, um, I have a lot of detail here that it's difficult for me to. I pretty much covered this already just verbally. Um, the if you have a cookie marked as strict, then it will never be sent in a third-party context. So you can, and the way that can happen is you can receive a cookie in a first-party context, and then, and then if you, if you are receive, if you, if a query comes in from a, from a, uh, or or if you then make a query to that domain for which you received a cookie in the first uh, party context in a, a, a but that's a third party domain then if the cookie was marked as strict for same site enforcement the browser pretends not to have a cookie just doesn't you know doesn't return it to the server uh, as part of the, uh, the, the the response so um, the this the HTTP state tokens proposal, this this uh, IETF document explains, aims to replace cookies with a state management mechanism that has better security and privacy properties. That proposal is somewhat aspirational. He recognizes he says it's going to take a long time to come to agreement on the exact contours of a cookie replacement and an even longer time to actually do so. He says, while we're debating the details of a new state management primitive, it seems quite reasonable to reevaluate some aspects of the existing primitive, which is cookies. He says, when we can find consensus on some aspect of HTTP state tokens, we can apply those aspirations to cookies now, driving incremental improvements to state management in the status quo. <clears throat> and so essentially what has happened is Google is the first browser with, with Chrome 80 to bite this bullet and make this change to, to essentially change the way in, in some instances cross-site cookies are handled and returned. And I'm, I'm, I've scrolled through a whole bunch of stuff in the show notes that anyone who's really interested in, in the in the nitty gritty can read. Uh, Troy Hunt blogged about this pending change last month uh, on January 3rd. He uh, he uh, blogged a posting titled "Promiscuous Cookies and Their Impending Death Via the Same Site Policy." the top of his blog, before he gets into a lot of details, he said, cookies like to get around. They have no scruples about where they go, save for some basic constraints relating to the origin from which they were set. Uh, he says, I mean, uh, he says, I mean, have a think about it. He said, if a website sets a cookie, when you click, click a link to another page on that same site, Will the cookie be automatically sent with the request? Yes. What if an attacker sends you a link to that same website in a malicious email and you click that link? Will the cookie be sent? Also, yes. And he says, finally, what if an attacker 
directs you to a malicious website, and upon visiting it, your browser makes a post request to the original website that set the cookie. Will that cookie still be sent with the request? And he says, yes, exclamation point. So there are ways that this can be abused. He says, he says cookies just don't care about how the request was initiated, nor from which origin. All they care about is that they're valid for the requested resource. He says origin is a key word here too. Those last two examples above are cross-origin requests in that they were initiated from origins other than the original website that set the cookie. The problem is that opens up a rather nasty attack vector we know of as cross-site request forgery, or CSRF. He says, way back in 2010, I was writing about this as part of the OWASP Top 10 for ASP.NET series, and, and a near decade later, it is still a problem. So in his posting, he gives some examples of how a post providing both old uh, both the old and a new password, for example, a post which is in the response to a, a password change uh, action, uh, dialogue and, and submission, carries a promiscuous cookie that which can be abused. Um, I don't have it here because I can't describe it in, in detail in the podcast, but uh, it's in the link that I provided if anyone wants to see the, the details. He explains that in the in a secure response, which is the second of the examples he offers, there are two anti-forgery tokens passed along with a request. One is in a cookie and one is in the body, both of them called request verification token. Um, this is a familiar approach being used to deal with uh, cross uh, cross-site request forgery prevention, which is familiar to anybody who's been writing uh, secure web applications. Many frameworks now just build this into the framework. It, it's a mess, but it's the best thing we have right now, currently. Anyway, so he talks about how both the cookie and the body uh, carry a request verification token. He says they're not identical, but they're paired such that when the server receives the request, it checks to see if both values exist and if they have been previously paired together, if they belong together. If not, the request is rejected. He says this works because while the one in the cookie will be automatically sent with the request regardless of its origin, in a forged request scenario, the one in the body would need to be provided by the attacker, and they have no idea what the value should be. The browser's security model ensures there's no way for the attacker causing the victim's browser to visit the target site, generate the token in the HTML, then pull it out of the browser in a way that the malicious actor can access. He says, at least not without a cross-site scripting vulnerability as well, and then that's the whole, he says that's a whole different class of vulnerability with different defenses. Anyway, the point is that we're living in a world where the use of cookies as our state management is 
is vulnerable to exploits that clever hackers have come up uh, with over time. So the change that Google has made in Chrome 80 to change the default to a way that blocks this class of of um, cross-site scripting uh, forgeries uh, is expected to have some consequences. So I salute Google for making the change. Microsoft plans to follow, although I think they're probably going to stand back a little bit and wait to see what happens. And Mozilla has indicated that it supports the idea also. Um, in some reporting that I saw of this, it turns out that uh, OpenID apps may be breaking. Microsoft er, uh, uh, warned very early on that these these same site changes would break sites and applications that rely on OpenID-based federation. Eric Anderson wrote in a July 23rd Chromium forum post on the use of cookies with same site. He said, we love the intent and spirit of this change, but we fairly quickly determined that this breaks a large number of our sites leveraging Azure Active Directory, AAD, and Microsoft account, MSA, authentication using the contract as defined here. We suspect that other OpenID-based federated auth providers may have similar scenarios and be broken. Google warned IT professionals in its October 23rd Chromium blog post that there could be problems with internal applications and single sign-on implementations. They said enterprise IT administrators may need to implement special policies to temporarily revert Chrome browser to legacy behavior if some services such as single sign-on or internal applications are not ready for the February launch, and that was last week. Microsoft has issued a specific warning about the coming same site changes. They said effects could be felt when using Microsoft Teams client applications. They wrote there are considerations for sites that use ASP.NET, Exchange Server, SharePoint Server, and Skype for Business Client. They will all need to be they will all need to have the latest updates installed. So so this is this is not something that has has taken the industry by surprise. However, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes some people who haven't been been paying attention or who haven't been keeping these applications updated. So essentially, people like Microsoft with ASP.NET, Exchange Server, SharePoint Server, and so forth, they recognized this was happening and they changed their technology to be compatible. The, uh, for example, it may have been nothing more than saying explicitly same site equals none, adding that attribute to cookies which they where they know that will not introduce a vulnerability. That allows the legacy third-party behavior to still continue, yet uh, it and it overrides the default if they didn't have same site equals something, which changed last week in Chrome. Microsoft warned in a Microsoft Teams and same site cookies document that, quote, applications running in the Teams desktop client are incompatible with the same site equal none attribute 
and they will not work as expected. They said the document offered a couple of workaround options. It also explained that the, that the secure attribute needs to be used when the same site attributes value is set to none. That's that second thing that got changed here to assure that third-party cookies won't get rejected. For sites using ASP.NET or ASP.NET Core, Microsoft warned in an October 18th ASP.NET blog post that the new same site changes will be in effect with .NET 4.7.2 and .NET Core 2.1 and above, and they could break OpenID Connect logins. Updates to .NET that were released back in December and November added support for the new same site behavior. So again, as long as everybody's platforms have been kept current and and are current this should have gone smoothly i imagine people may already have discovered that things that like authentication among other things are broken uh, because as i've as as we've talked about uh, in the case of open id uh, you're bouncing the user around and deliberately using some of these browser features in order to maintain the the connectivity of all these pieces Unfortunately, that breaks unless it has been updated in the months preceding Google's change. Uh, so we see another example here of security is hard and change is even harder. But tightening up the default behavior of cross-site cookies will clearly be a good thing moving forward. And if we've learned anything, it's that until there is some actual pain – some actual breakage, no one will change anything. So this is why I salute Google. They're biting the bullet. They're being willing to break a few eggs in order to force the changes that will, in the end, significantly improve the security of web applications for everyone. So we end up with Chrome, you know, going first, uh, applications, some things, some some corner things, some edge cases probably getting broken. It's like, what, what, why, why can't I authenticate anymore? Or, or, or why is my, my web app no longer working? I imagine the, the person will find out rather quickly what's going on. And then it's just, I mean, it's not like the chain, like making the change is hard. If you're, if you're sure you're not going to introduce or perpetuate a security vulnerability, you just add same site equals none in order to revert to what was the default behavior. Um, but at, at the same time, the reason that's been changed is to begin making some meaningful security improvements to cookies. Uh, this does that. Uh, and again, uh, uh, it makes cookies less promiscuous. And uh, I, I salute Google for leading the way. Yeah, I mean, I'm skeptical. I feel like they've got an alternative that'll work just as well for them and their advertisers. And so, in a way, this is just, uh, pull, you know, we we got our method. You you guys shouldn't use that other method. Sorry, we won't use that. Well, but it's better than nothing, right? Yeah, they have their own fingerprinting yeah. techniques. Well, and the other browsers will will be following suit too. So right. Firefox uh, recognizes that the, you the know, difference this is, is Google's an thing. ad company. Firefox yeah. is not an ad company. Right. So Google, <laughs> what I'm saying is Google's got its own means and it doesn't really need third-party cookies. And yeah, that's – uh, I'm skeptical. Hey, good show. Thank you. 
Lots to talk about. You can find uh, this show along with Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and recovery utility. Hard drive maintenance and recovery. I'll have to word out. Maintenance and recovery utility. It's grc.com. That's Steve's home on the internet. He has 16 kilobit audio for the bandwidth impaired. He has 64 kilobit audio for people with two ears. And he has a beautifully written transcript by Elaine, uh, all at grc.com. While you're there, not only Spinrite, but lots of free stuff like Shields Up and all sorts of wonderful, useful tools, perfect pa paper passwords, and on and on and on. GRC.com. He's at SGGRC on Twitter if you want to follow him, and, and you can leave messages there. Uh, we have a copy of the show, too. We have audio and video at twit.tv slash SN. And there's a YouTube channel. But, you know, honestly, the best thing to do is subscribe. Get your podcaster pointed uh, toward our feed. Actually, if you search for Twit on your podcast application, you just press subscribe, 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 subscribe. You'll get all the shows automatically downloaded the minute you need them. You got them on your sh on your sh stuff. Steve, uh, we will be back here next Tuesday, one thirty Pacific. We should be on time next week. Uh, we were a little delayed by the Samsung event. One thirty Pacific, four thirty Eastern, twenty one thirty UTC. Live streams at twit.tv slash live. Chat room at irc.twit.tv. Join the kids in the back of the class as they throw spit wads at us. And uh, I will see you next week right here. Yep. We have President's uh, Day holiday observation on Monday. And uh -huh. so uh, you and I will be here the following day on Tuesday. See you then. Thanks, Steve. Right, buddy. Bye. Security now.